Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a really great guest today. Uh, her name is Emily Fletcher. She, she created a company called Ziva Meditation, Z-I-V-A, and that's the website as well, zivameditation.com. And I was telling her offline that I, uh, I saw her speak, and she actually led a guided meditation of several hundred people at uh, the Bulletproof Conference, you know, held by Dave Asprey years ago in Pasadena. Not too many years ago, but uh, she did a great job, and I felt really good after, I think it was literally five minutes of, of hearing her voice and, and her meditation, and it seemed like she had a really great method. And, um, you know, I'd like to have her on the podcast and talk about meditation and how to de-stress, and I was joking with her, too, that, you know, now in the days of COVID, uh, she probably doesn't have much to do, and it was an ironic laugh to that. So, Emily, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hi, I am happy to be here. And uh, yeah, it turns out uh, the world is pretty stressed right now. So it's, uh, it's nice to be, it's nice to feel needed. You know, I feel like my whole career I've been like, hey, everybody, you got to meditate. Like, here's all the reasons you should meditate. And now people are trapped in their homes and stressed AF and they're like, give me all the meditation. And oh, yeah. so it's, uh, it's been an interesting shift for me. Yeah. And just for listeners, uh, she's just not like an off the street, you know, corner shop meditator. Um, she's, you know, been in the New York Times, Good Morning America, Today Show, Vogue, ABC, none of which I've been on. Uh, she's been named one of the top 100 women in wellness to watch. And she's spoken in Apple and Google and Harvard Business School. So uh, very, very accomplished. And uh, a lot of people that uh, at very high levels listen to her and follow her. So, you know, again, glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. It's like, that's an interesting thing. People at high levels listen to you. It's like, well, did you ever watch that show, uh, Silicon Valley? No, I've heard about it, but I haven't watched it's, it. No. It's really funny. It's a comedy, but it's sort of a, you know, take off on all the tech companies in Silicon Valley. And there's this CEO guy and he has this advisor and it's, it's basically like his spiritual advisor. And, and this guy's like a total charlatan. Like he's just wearing beads and speaking in riddles, but he's like masquerading as this spiritual guru advisor. It's like, it's just funny because it's like, well, if you can convince people at very high levels to listen to you, like, does that mean anything about you or not? So it's an interesting thing yeah. to ponder. <clears throat> well, Nancy Reagan, I heard had a, uh, uh, someone that was doing numerology or astrology with her and and there's the case of Rasputin. And so I, I guess kings and queens and, uh, you know, the wealthiest people in the world, world leaders have had all kinds of people whispering in their ear, good or bad. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I'm sure you're a good whisperer. I've heard your whispers in the good. So. I, I do like to consider myself a good witch and not a, not a bad witch. But, you know, I think yeah. that's all in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> all right. So um, what, how did you first get into meditation? Like, what was your life like that caused you to look at meditation and to embrace it? Yeah, so I, I used to be on Broadway for about 10 years. 
So it was a, a high performance career. And my last show was a chorus line where my job was to understudy three of the lead roles. So it's, it's pretty high demand. Like imagine showing up to your job and being like, well, I have no idea which job I'm going to do today. And, and that job OPS is going to happen in front of thousands of people in a leotard and a spotlight. So, you know, it was pretty intense. And so I started having uh, anxiety, which led to insomnia, which led to me going prematurely gray, which led to you know, all sorts of things, getting sick, injured. And so finally I found meditation and it cured my insomnia on the first day. I then didn't get sick for eight and a half years. I stopped going gray. I started enjoying my job again. And so I just thought, why does everyone not do this? So I left Broadway, I went to India and I started what became a three-year training process to teach. And then I graduated and started Ziva. And then we created the world's first online meditation training, which is now called Ziva Online. And since then, I've taught 25,000 people to meditate, um, which was helped largely. My, my first book came out last year. And so that really, you know, got the interest going and I think inspired a lot more people to, to sign up. And so it's been so fascinating to watch like both, well, both when I started Ziva Online, there were no real online I mean, online courses weren't really a thing yet. I know it's hard to believe now, but they weren't. Yeah. And also meditation wasn't really a thing. I mean, obviously it's been around for thousands of years, but it wasn't super mainstream or accepted in the West, certainly not in the New York City high performance circles. And so that's really where I came into the mix. It was like, hey, let's reframe this thing as a performance tool. Like, let's take all the dogma and the doctrine and the woo-woo out of it and just say, hey, do you perform better when you're less stressed? And it turns out, yes, you do. There's extraordinary amounts of science about you know, how stress is making us all stupid, sick, and slow. Mm. And so I think that people appreciated the kind of no-nonsense approach and also my performance background. And uh, it's just really been a beautiful journey. Yeah, so you went, I guess you can call it to the source by going to India. So you have that perspective of being in India and I guess being trained by people there and then being here. So how is it different over there versus here? Is it more authentic or is it just different? Well, I mean, India is, I mean, it's like another world to, to America. I mean, just there's a level of devotion. There's a level of community. There's, I mean, just the colors, the smells, the sounds. I mean, it really feels like you're on another planet, at least for me, when I go to India, in certain parts anyway, Northern India. I studied up in Rishikesh, um, but it's, it's, Rishikesh is quite westernized now. Actually, because there's so many tourists that come for, there's like international yoga week that happens now. And, um, but it just depends on where you're going. But I think that what I love about India is that because people have been meditating regularly in certain parts for, for thousands of years, 10,000 years, like the trees feel like they vibrate. You know, it's like there's just a different uh, frequency happening there, certainly than in New York City, wherever, where it's concrete and stress and, you know, red lights and subway and everything. Well, you know, I, you know, I'm from New York and I can tell there's definitely an energy there. Sometimes I liked it. Sometimes I didn't, but I think places do actually have a feeling to them for sure. And you can call it energy, you can call it whatever you want, but I think it's there for sure. Mm -hmm. And if you ever go to Japan, you know, which is a, you know, certainly like Tokyo is one of the more densely populated cities in the world. I think even more densely populated than New York, but it's interesting because there is a level of devotion and there is a level of meditation that more people are practicing there just because um, a lot of the folks are Buddhist there and, Buddha, and meditation is part of daily practice in Buddhism. And so even though it's very crowded, there is an organization to it. Like it, it just seems like everything is more, that, that it flows 
there's a, there's a rhythm and a different pace versus there's a freneticism or um, it seems more chaotic in New York City. Yeah, I've crossed it, you know, like, I guess that outside of Shinjuku Station, it's like one of the biggest intersections yes. in the world and there's a lot of people. It, in New York, being around a lot of people, I don't know, I feel on guard, like you're going to get into a fight with somebody at any moment. In Japan, there were a lot of people, but it wasn't aggressive, crowded. It was just, it, it was, I don't know, people were more okay with it, I guess. They didn't have that, like, get the fuck out of my way energy. Totally, yeah. So, hmm. so okay, so India was a different world. Um, I don't know, what what did you learn there that really struck you? You know, now that you've you know, been in the U.S. for a while and you taught people here and, you know, meditation, I'm sure, has taken on probably a little different form. Like, what is it like to meditate over there versus here? Like, what's different about it? Hmm. Well, it feels, interestingly, you'd think like, oh, I'm having these transcendent, mind-blowing, you know, levitating type experiences when you're in India, but it's it's the opposite. Like, because you're, because the energy there is so palpable and because you're already in a different state, just being there. And I'm talking specifically of Rishikesh right now. I'm not speaking of the, I mean, India is a vast, vast country with many, many different regions and cities and everything, but I'm talking about Rishikesh where I did my training. Um, just being there already, you feel like you're in an elevated state of consciousness. And so when you go to meditate, the transition isn't all that dramatic. Um, it's like, you're not going from white to black. You're just going from a lighter shade of gray to a darker shade of gray. So the meditations don't feel all that profound. They don't feel all that different because the transition of consciousness is not that great. Versus when you meditate in New York City, where you go, you, it feels more white to black. We're like, oh, I'm really stressed and amped and running around. And then my body's so tired from that, that it goes, and it just drops down into this deep healing um, fourth state of consciousness. So that was how it felt. Um, but as far as what I learned, like it was more of a, it was like an unveiling, meaning it was a cool story. Um, when I just, I was still on tour. Well, I learned to meditate in between Chorus Line Broadway and Chorus Line Tour. And then my first city, or no, my second city on the Chorus Line Tour was Los Angeles. And I knew there were a lot of meditation teachers there. So I just wanted to like learn more about it and, you know, understand the community. And so I looked up the, for, I looked for group meditations in LA and I found this guy, he's at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, come on over. So I show up for a group meditation and it's just him and his girlfriend. And I was like, well, this is not really the group meditation experience I was looking for. Um, but I guess you're not crazy. So I just went ahead and meditated. And then afterwards I opened my eyes and I saw this beautiful photo. It was like this blown up artistic photo of a bridge with a light at the end of it. And I said, what is that? And he said, that's Rishikesh. And I was like, what's a Rishikesh? And he said, that's this town in India. We're going on a retreat there in January. Are you coming? And I said, no. And I looked back at the photo and I looked at him and I said, yeah, I'm going to go. And so cut to six months later, I'm in Rishikesh. It's my 30th birthday. And every morning we would uh, meditate on the banks of the Ganges River at dawn. And we had to cross this bridge to get there. And so this one morning, the first day we do it, we're about to cross the bridge. I look up and the sun is rising on the other side of this bridge. And I stop in my tracks and I start sobbing, crying, because I can see that it's the exact same snapshot from that photo in Los Angeles. And I knew that the me in that moment was going back to the me in LA and was like, hey, you have to come here. You have to be a teacher. Because when I went to India originally, I was just going for my own personal edification. I just wanted to understand more. But it was in that moment that I knew I would be a teacher. But even then I thought, oh, well, it'll be later when I'm done dancing, done singing, when I'm done with Broadway. Um, but very shortly thereafter, it just, nature uh, rendered me choiceless, as we say, meaning that right. it just became very clear where nature wanted to use me. No, that's great. So what, um, 
what's unique about Ziva? Like, what did you add or take away or change about what you've learned and what you see out there to make it unique to you? Mm, great question. So I'll talk about what I took away and what I added. So I'd say as much as possible, I took away any pomp and circumstance, any um, doctrine, any dogma, any wafts of guru that were lingering around um, because it's, I mean, that's just how this, this knowledge, these traditions, these tools have existed for so many thousands of years. They've been passed down guru to disciple, guru to, to disciple. And there's something really beautiful about that. There's, I'm really a fan of devotion. I'm a fan of doing the work to, to move into a level of mastery. But, you know, it's like how many more podcasts do we need with the guru takedown? I mean, you know, we've got the Bikram, we've got the Hare Krishna one, we've got the, I think it's called Guru, the guy who was like murdering people in sweat lodges. You know, it's it's just uh, and wild, wild country, and it's like it, it, we've seen this archetype play out again and again and again of these like quote unquote gurus who get into positions of power, and then I don't know what I don't know if it's intoxication from money or power or what, but then it's just they start like, committing like really unspeakable crimes, and and so and I think what's tricky about that is that they're not. Um, it's not that everything is made up. Like usually if, if they reach some sort of a level of, you know, notoriety, it's because something they have is working for people. You know, something they have is making people feel better. And so it's like if people find one thing that makes them feel better, sometimes it, it affects their judgment in other areas. So it's like, oh, well, I learned meditation from this person. And so they must have my best interest at heart. Like surely if they want to sleep with me, it's fine. Or surely if they want me to stay in this 140 degree thing for five days, it's fine. Or certainly if they're doing like heroin trafficking and sex trafficking, it's fine, right? <laughs> I mean, this, this stuff, I mean, it really gets pretty crazy where you're like, man, I got no chance of making it as a guru. I got no heroin. I got no you know, sex trafficking. Um, I can tell you just a, a, a quick story and um, yeah this was like in I think in Arizona I, I, I was going to this yoga class and the lady that ran it was just you know really trying to be mystical and saying you know feel the light coming out of your eyes I don't know what it was and then I saw her later that day at Starbucks like smoking a cigarette and on the phone cursing at somebody <clears throat> and she saw me and she was like she was horrified you know so it was just funny to see the BS persona that she had in class and then the real her which was you know, not at all like that. And was it the fact that she was smoking or cursing or coffee, or was it just like the whole deal? It just felt like not the same as what you were. Yeah, it was just, it was just the whole deal. Like, she was mm-hmm. like overdone in the yoga studio and, and it was the polar opposite, you know, seeing yeah. her in that. And I didn't even need to say anything to her. I could just tell she was like horrified and like kind of like ran away. So it was funny. It stuck with me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tricky because it's like, just because you're, I mean, I think that's why I'm also doubling down on the like anti-guru thing. No, it's not anti-guru. It's like, I'm great with gurus. I'm great if people want a guru. I have had teachers that I consider gurus. A guru just means bringer of light. Like guru means remover of darkness. So it's it's not that, um, you know, teachers are bad. Or it's not that devotion is bad. I've, I'm down with it. Where it gets tricky is when people stop using their own judgment or they, or if, if someone starts to abuse that very honored position. But at the end of the day, I'm, you know, everyone's just human and we're all teachers and we're all fallible and, you know, no one's perfect. And I've, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I've certainly like, I'm sure I've cursed at someone. I mean, actually anger is not really my, my vice. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm sure I've done things that I would not do in front of my meditation class. And so I try to be gentle with it, but there is certainly like a, a point where you're like, oh no, that's just criminal. 
Right. And so I've just basically pointed the story is what I've removed from Ziva is I've tried to remove any of the ceremony or um, like sort of like guru worship around it and just make it as practical as possible. It's like, here's this tool. It's going to make your brain and body work better. Here's a really fun and entertaining way to learn it. Hey, um, I happen to be really good at helping you form a habit and I'm happen to be really good at creating awesome communities that are supportive. And, um, and so that's what I took away. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What I've added in um, is so what I learned when I went to India and originally in New York was, was meditation. And, it, and that word is tricky because most people put meditation and mindfulness in the same category. They, they don't really know the difference between the two. So what most people think of when they hear the word meditation, it would be like a free app on their phone. You know, I downloaded Headspace or I got Calm or something. And those are great, but I would call those mindfulness. Right, so I define mindfulness as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. The art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. And mindfulness is awesome. Um, it's very good at dealing with your stress in the now. It's very good at creating a state change. So anytime someone's guiding you through, anytime you're visualizing, anytime you're focusing or counting your breath, I would call that mindfulness. And that's very different from the meditation that I teach at Ziva. So the style of meditation that I teach at Ziva is all about giving your body deep rest, rest that's actually five times deeper than sleep. And that's not insignificant because one, you feel like you've had a power nap on the other side of the meditation. So even for 15 minutes, it's like an hour long nap. But the other really cool thing is that when you give your body this deep rest, it knows how to heal itself. And one of the things that it heals itself from is stress not only from today, but all that stress we've been accumulating our whole lives. So, you know, going through something like cancer, going through something like radiation, a breakup, Taco Bell, alcohol, um, all-nighters, you know, all that stuff gets stored in our, in our cellular memory. And now they're starting to even say that we've inherited stress. I've, I've read that we can prove that humans inherit it for at least two generations, but there've been studies done on mice saying that they inherit stress for up to seven generations. So I don't know if it's two or seven for humans, but point of the story is that it's not just our stress that we're clearing, we're actually dealing with previous generations as well. So that's the big differentiator between Ziva and apps is that I'm, I'm, I start with mindfulness just to help people get into a different state right out of the gate. Um, but then the magic really happens when you're going in and getting rid of that stress from the past. That's what increases your IQ by up to 12 points. That's what reverses your body age by up to 15 years. That's what decreases your chance of being hospitalized is really that eradication of the backlog of stress from our cells. And then the other thing that I added to the practice is the third M. So what I teach at Ziva is three Ms, mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. And manifesting is probably the most woo-woo of what I do, but it's really not that woo-woo. Like we're all manifesting all the time. If you want to know what you're manifesting, look at your life. You know, look at your relationships, your money, your house. Like what's happening right now is an indicator of what you've been manifesting. And your state of consciousness right now is indicative of what you will be manifesting in your future. And it's why we really want to pay attention to and take care of our mindset because if we're constantly spinning in fear and anxiety and self-doubt and worry, then we're planting really low quality seeds for our future. So my definition of manifesting is simply uh, consciously creating a life you love. It's you getting intentional about what you want your life to look like. 
And a lot of us think that we're manifesting. A lot of us think we're praying even. And, but what we're accidentally doing is complaining like, Oh, I wish I had more money. Like, why does she have a boyfriend? And I don't, why does he, why did he get the raise? And I didn't. And then we're just asking shitty questions and then we get shitty answers. It's like, Oh, well, she has a boyfriend because you're old and ugly. Oh, he got the raise because you're terrible at your job. You know, so if you ask these terrible questions of your brain, it will find terrible answers versus what I teach in the manifesting is that at the end of the meditation, where the right and left hemispheres of your brain are functioning in unison, you've de-excited your nervous system, you can hear your own intuition, we start to ask really high quality questions like, what would I love right now? What would I love right now? So simple, so effective. Not what do I want, not what do I need, not what did I say I was going to do yesterday, but what would I love right now? It puts you into possibility. It puts you into spirit. And right, it makes then, you hungry too. <laughs> it can make you hungry. Um, and you bring up a good point because without a meditation practice, right, then it's very hard to tell the difference between an addictive longing and what I would call an intuitive desire, right? So the manifesting piece really is, it's the bonus round. It's the advanced part. And you've got to be meditating first, because if you ask a heroin addict what they want, they're going to be like, oh, I'd really love some more heroin, please. <laughs> or if you ask a workaholic what they would love, it's like, oh, I would love to finish this work or, you know, finish this deadline. And it's, and so once we start meditating, we get out of that fight or flight, then we're able to discern the difference between addictive longings and intuitive desires. And, and then the manifesting gets a lot more powerful. Yeah, I remember, you know, I'm sure there's a, a subset of people like me, but I don't like the woo-woo mysticism type stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I would think that would push a lot of people. Away. I mean, it would attract some people, but a lot of people that, you know, are suspicious of meditation, let's say, would be mm -hmm. pushed away. So by you remo removing like the pomp and circumstance and all that, just getting into it and being practical about it, it probably makes it a lot more accessible for a lot of people that, Say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if it'll work for me. I don't know if I should do it. That kind of thing. Totally. And then also I think, you know, I've taught 25,000 people, some of which are like Oscar, Grammy, Tony, Emmy award winners, NBA players, you know, Apple, Google execs. And so I think at a certain point you get enough of like an A-list roster where you're like, all right, well, if it's, if they're doing it, like they're not doing it because they have copious amounts of extra time, right? Like they're doing it because they know it makes them perform better. And so at a certain point you're just like, yeah, like it, it works. The question is not, does meditation work? The question is, are you going to commit to it or not? And so my job is really like helping people to move past their own resistance, which for most folks is, I don't, I think I don't have time and I've tried to meditate, but I can't clear my mind. And the time piece is really simple uh, in that you're not spending your time with Ziva, you're investing your time. So it's 15 minutes twice a day. And when you're overwhelmed and stressed and harried, you're like, oh, no way could I do 15 minutes twice a day. And it's like, the only reason you think that is because you don't yet understand the opportunity cost of the stress. You don't understand that stress is making your sleep shitty. It's making you get sick more often than you need. It's making you make bad decisions. It's, how it's disallowing you from prioritizing appropriately. Um, and then you spend so much time in indecision, waffling, because you can't hear your intuition, that you're actually wasting a ton of time on stress. And that's to say nothing of actual anxiety or depression or autoimmune disease issues or breakups or losing your temper, which all is expensive time-wise. So one of the drums that I beat day in and day out is that we're not spending our time on meditation, we are investing it. And I'd say the other really differentiating thing with Ziva is that when you know, with apps, 
they're good, they're a state change, but they're not gonna give you the same kind of ROI as Ziva because they're not eradicating that stress from your cells. So even though you're, you're investing 15 minutes twice a day, it's 2% of your day, and it makes the other 98% more amazing. I mean, you start to do that math, then you're like, oh, okay. Because also we're all spending more than 15 minutes scrolling through Instagram. We're definitely spending more than 15 minutes on the news. We're spending more than 15 minutes making dumb decisions or reading emails that we should have you know, delegated to someone else. And so once you start meditating, it's just like, oh, this person, that email, this decision, you fall asleep faster. You end up needing less sleep. Your to-do list used to take you five hours, starts to take you more like three. And so then you're like, oh, I actually have more time in my day when I do this thing. You know, you know what I realized is that, you know, I, I try not to multitask, but I do. Um, <laughs> by the fact that you're meditating, even for five minutes or 15 minutes, whatever it is, you're, you're time blocking at least a small amount of time. And you're just doing one thing where you're trying to. And I think just practicing that probably is really good for people that, you know, again, they're getting notifications and there's constant distraction. So I think that, I don't know if that, you know, you, I'm sure you're aware of it, but I just realized mm-hmm. that's probably a good aspect of it is like literally learning how to time block an activity and only do that one thing probably is helpful as well. You're, you're right. There's actually, there's a guy named Srini Palau and he's a psychiatrist at Harvard and he talks about something called focus fatigue. Uh, and so, I mean, I think it's a little bit different from what you're saying, but he's basically, you know, normally in our days, you know, we are multitasking, but we're also going from meeting to meeting to call to call to social media. And, um, and then it's, and we get into focus fatigue. Like our brains are only designed to do that for a few hours a day. And after like three or four hours, we get hugely diminishing returns. So it's really important that we take a break of some sort. And so he's really big on what he calls like structured unfocused time where you would doodle or daydream or, you know, there's nothing scheduled. You're just letting your brain kind of be. And that's exactly what Ziva does for you. It gives you structured unfocused time. Like in Ziva, we're not focusing, we're not clearing the mind, we're not concentrating. Those are very monastic types of meditation, whereas Ziva is designed for people with busy minds and busy lives. And so it is very much like you're allowed to daydream, you're allowed to have thoughts, you're allowed to hear all the sounds around you, um, but it is structured, meaning that, yeah, you've allocated this time, you're protecting it. And then what you find is that you have, because you're getting that rest, it's like you took a supercharged power nap and you have so much more clarity, so much more energy, so much more productivity on the other side. Yeah, that's really good. Um, a few times, well, especially lately, um, you know, I've been reading about stoicism. I've tried various things to settle myself and feel better. But sometimes like when you're in the heat of the moment, when you're really stressed out at a certain point, is that a good time to try to meditate right then? Or if you're too amped up and too upset, is it just gonna make it impossible to try to meditate? Or, or is it a good time again to do it? I think it depends on whether or not you have training. I think that if you've never meditated before and you don't have any training, I would not recommend the middle of a panic attack to be your first attempt at meditation. Because <laughs> it's just gonna, I mean, it's like <laughs> learning how to, it's like taking a swimming lesson while you're drowning. You know, it's like, no, you just need a life vest at that point. Um, but, um, and I think a lot of people, because meditation is simple, people assume they should already know how to do it, but it really is a skill. And so I would say just like learning any skill, you wanna do it in an environment where you're safe, where you feel ready, where you have a teacher that you trust. And you want to build up that muscle so that, and, and then the beautiful thing is that if you have a daily practice, your chances of launching into a full-blown fight or flight stress reaction drop precipitously because you are 
like filling up your reservoirs every day with energy. You're filling up your reservoirs every day with creativity. And so even though life is going to throw you the same demands, those demands don't feel as expensive. You know, they don't feel like, oh, if this person even just looks at me wrong, I'm going to lose my shit. Because you're not, you're not running on empty anymore. Your tank is full because you've tapped into the very source of energy. Um, so I would, I would not recommend like really intense times as like your first meditation. But, you know, there's so much guided stuff out there. If you wanted to do a guided thing on YouTube or, you know, one of the apps or something, I think that's kind of like a life fest. Well, have you noticed that with practice, if you suddenly encounter a stressful situation, are you able to take yourself out of it easier? Or do you feel it just as intensely as before? And Well, I would say that it, two things happen. One, it's not that meditation makes you stop feeling. Because I, I had someone post on my, in my Facebook group this morning. They were like, I've been meditating for one month now and I still get upset. I was like, no one promised you that you were not going to have emotions when you started meditating. You know, this is, doesn't make you just like a little bliss bunny floating around the room all the time. It's not that we don't feel things. We actually feel them more intensely. We just feel them faster, right? It's like if your cat dies, you're not going to be like, oh, great. You know, it's not that you don't get upset. You, you feel it. You mourn it. You process it. You purge it fully. And usually for meditators, they move through that purging more quickly. So I'd say the intensity is higher and the speed of recovery is faster. Um, and versus like the analogy I always teach when I'm in my classes, I say, you know, let's say there's 50 people in the room and I say, all right, y'all, let's imagine a tiger walks in here right now with the intent to kill. Everyone in this room is going to launch into a fight or flight stress reaction. And that's appropriate. It's not bad for us to get stressed. What's killing us is the staying stressed. So tiger comes in, everyone in the room will get stressed. Let's say half the room is meditating. The other half is not. The difference between those two groups is that the meditators are telling a funny story about this tiger over drinks two hours later. The non-meditators have to pay their therapist $200 a week for the next 10 years to deal with the PTSD. Also, they hold the bad in them for a lot longer and the yeah, meditators just, let it go faster. Exactly. Like you feel it, you feel it fully. And then you're into the new now, the new now. So we have this perception that meditators aren't feeling anything, that they're just happy all the time. That's not true. They're not just stuck in the mire of some old stress, some old trauma. They process that. They dealt with that. And now they're present. Now they're here. Now they're in their body. And 99.9% .9 of the time, if you can get yourself right here, right now, you're fine. Like most people listening to this <laughs> podcast right now are drowning in abundance. It's when we get into fear and speculation and what if, and I don't know. And that's when we stress ourselves out. It's always past and future. That's where our stress lives. Bliss is always found right here, right now. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, what else have you found that, um, I don't know if it surprised you or not, but where, where do people run into difficulty when they're going to start a program with you or when they're, when they're in the program? Like, you know, why do they drop out? What, what helps people mm -hmm. succeed and get the benefits from meditation and mindfulness and, and everything? Good question. So once they're in, I mean, I'd say that the reasons why people don't start is they think they don't have time, which we've talked about. Um, money is sometimes a consideration for people because people are gauging that right now when you say meditation, people think it should just be a free app. And it's sort of like, okay, well, you, one, you get what you pay for. And two, this is your brain that we're talking about. You know, it's in charge of every single decision in your life and every cell in your body. So it's like, if you're not going to invest in your brain, I don't really know what else you're spending your money on. Um, but so th those are two barriers of people starting. But then once people are in, I would say the reason why most people quit is that they get scared of the intensity of feeling that starts to arise. So, you know, I keep saying that meditation gets rid of your stress from the past. 
And that sounds nice and easy, but it's like, look, if you have trauma in there, you're going to have some trauma flavored stress coming up and out. If you have sadness inside of you, there's going to be some sad flavored stress coming up and out. If there's rage inside of you, there's going to be some rage flavored stress coming up and out. And that's really my job as a teacher is to help people through that physical and emotional detox period. And that's why I have, I mean, I have 12 employees in five states and our number one job is to help people through this process and to support people in their journey. And one of the things I'm most proud of is the community that we've created, even online, And we also do like monthly coaching calls and that's all in place so that if, you know, someone's going through an extraordinarily tough time, you know, it might not last for long, but it's important that they feel supported through that and that they know what's normal or what needs to be adjusted. Um, But the trick is that a lot of people, when that emotional and physical purge happens, like I warn people eight days to Sunday. I mean, I, it's in all my sales videos. It's on the website. It's in the training videos. I'm like, this is coming. You need to be aware of it. Like take some naps, take some baths, take some walks. Don't make major life decisions. But it doesn't matter how many times I warn people, they still think, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Like I'm just sitting quietly in a chair. Why on earth would that make me want to divorce my husband? Um, and then lo and behold, five days in, they're like, I'm getting a divorce. <laughs> and that's when I have to remind them like no major life decisions, um, you know, just rest. And so, but some people won't even get that far. Like some people start to feel their feelings. And because we've been trained since infancy to not feel, you know, it's like, shh, don't feel, have a bottle. Shh, don't feel, have a cookie, have a toy, have some Facebook, have an iPad. Don't feel your feelings, you know, because children's crying and anger makes us uncomfortable as adults. So we just try and stamp that out of them ASAP. Um, And so we as adults really have not been trained or equipped to feel or process our emotions. And so instead, we're just like, nope, I'm going to skip that part of the story. And then people think, oh, well, I'm just too busy or I I quit and I don't really know why. But if you really look at the reason underneath whatever people are telling themselves, it's usually that they don't want to feel their feelings. And that PS is why I created the Ziva technique. It's why I combined the mindfulness, the meditation and the manifesting together because we use the mindfulness in two ways. One as a runway into the meditation, meaning like it's hard for most of us to go from like the intensity of our day to just like goodbye, just dropping into some deep meditation. But the other way that we use mindfulness is to help if and when that purge happens. So mindfulness, again, is just right here, right now, right here, right now. And so let's say your dad died 10 years ago, but you never really grieved it. You know, you just kept working and you never processed it. You never mourned it. You never said goodbye properly. And so that, that grief is still stuck in you somewhere and you start meditating and it's like, it takes the lid off. You know, it's like, it starts to excavate all these old traumas. And so you might have some real sadness or fatigue or anger even that comes up. And so the mindfulness piece of it just allows you to sit in it to be like, let me feel this sadness. Let me feel this grief. Let me, let me listen to whatever it's trying to teach me so that I can move through again to the new now versus like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, which is what most of us have been doing our whole lives. Well, so as part of the program, you know that this moment's going to come probably for a lot of the people. So I guess you have a specific support system in place. I don't know, like mm-hmm. an emergency call to someone's coordinator or like, you know, how does it work? How do you... How have you found it best to handle when people run into that 
that moment of you know things bubbling up. Yeah, so a, a big part of it is just letting people know, like, so before it ever could be a possibility for people is making sure that they're aware that it's a possibility. And that in and of itself handles 98% of the instances. Um, and then, you know, we have a really beautiful online group so people can post, people can email us. And, you know, the whole team is very much like they know how to spot a Mayday situation. And then they, you know, text me immediately if I need to reach out to someone. Um, but usually if, as long as, I mean, and I give disclaimers, I'm like, look, if you just got out of a combat zone or if you've recently escaped like a sex trafficking ring, like probably not the best time to start Ziva because it is quite cathartic. So I would say for those people that are dealing with very recent, very extreme trauma, I would say start with mindfulness, start with therapy, maybe start with EMDR. And then once you feel stable, then you can do meditation. But for 99% of the population, we're, you know, we really need to get in there and clean these ones out. Well, hopefully there's no like meditation trolls in the, in the group or anything. Actually, I've been so surprised. I've been so pleasantly surprised. We have 27,000 people in our public group and I think 15,000 in our, you know, meditators group. And it is such a dang delight to be in there. Like everyone is so sane and so kind and so supportive and people have managed to veer away from politics and fear mongering and, you know, mask debates you know, like they're really, and the team and I are pretty draconian about like redirecting conversations to like, hey, this is a group to support people with their meditation. But everyone is really, really delightful. I think I've had to delete oh. like two people ever yeah. in the history of Ziva. And that's, that's pretty great. No, I was going to joke. I mean, if it's a meditation group, hopefully it wouldn't have trolls and, you know, <laughs> sounds, but, sounds but like a much is, better place. What I found out is that when, when people were trolling, I would check in, I would look at their accounts and they had never done the training. <laughs> so I was like, all right. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Sir, yeah. can you please start the training? <laughs> are, are there any like, I don't know, really simple things that get in the way? Like, like for myself, I'll just tell you, like I tried Headspace and I hated mm -hmm. the guy's voice. So it made me not want to do it. And okay. like to me, for some reason, I guess because I'm auditory, voice is very important if it's being guided. Do you, do you see any like, simple mechanical things that get in people's way of uh, taking your course or doing it at all? Well, I'm, I'm similar to you in that I'm allergic to what I call yoga voice. You know, there's that like very affected, like, all right, everyone, take a seat, <laughs> take a deep breath, and we'll all just be one with each other. And like, I just, I, it gives me hives. I'm like, can you just talk like a normal person? <laughs> um, so I personally, again, it's sort of the anti-woo-woo route. So I don't love I don't love an affectation. And when I can tell someone's affecting their voice on purpose, it takes me out of it. Uh, and, it and it's like, can just speak from your heart, you know, like just get yourself into a relaxed state of consciousness and speak from there. Um, I'm sure there are people who hate my voice and think that I'm too, that I talk too fast. But um, I, I think mechanically, I'm actually really proud of this in that the average online course, the average course completion rate is 3% which is shocking and abysmal. But I think that's why most people don't want to buy online courses. They're like, oh, there's another way I'm going to waste my money because I'm not going to finish it. But Ziva Online has a 70% completion rate, which is unheard of in the online course space. It's the highest course completion rate I've ever seen. I mean, there might be more higher ones, but I've never seen them. So I'm really proud of that. And I think the reason why that happened is that one, I had already been teaching for like five or six years before I made the online course. So I had been honing and crafting and really massaging the language and the analogies. And so I knew what landed with people because I had been workshopping it for years. And then I, because I used to be an actress, 
you know, I'm very good on camera and I know how to really get things through the lens and to land in people's hearts. And so I think the combination of that, um, you know, those two disciplines translates quite well into the online course. Has there been anything you've run into in this, you know, in the meditation world that you don't understand still? or that still surprises you or you haven't figured out? What do you mean, like in the communities or like concepts? Any, anywhere. I mean, anything that you're still, you feel like, you know, I know everyone goes, oh, we're always learning, but no, like seriously, is there anything that still like surprises you or you just can't get your head around either with the people yeah. or with the practice or just something about it that's like, Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd say every day. I mean, I love studying the philosophy and the Vedas and I'm, I'm really into Joe Dispenza's work right now. My friend Dawson Church uh, wrote a book called Mind to Matter and it's all about the science of, of manifesting. And it's, it really is fascinating to me to just to see how closely science and spirit are linked. You know, we thought of them as so separate for so long, but now that we're starting to really get into more like quantum mechanics, we realize just how bizarre nature is and how beyond our scope of human comprehension it is. And and so I'm fascinated by the parallels between like these ancient spiritual teachings and where science is heading. Um, And then I would say one thing that I don't understand is how people like kind of alluding to what we were talking about earlier and with the guru worship is like how people could have access to these types of mental technologies and these types of philosophies and practice them and then still do things that are so cruel or that are harming so many people. And again, like I'm, I have, I'm, I'm sure I'm mean to many people. I'm sure I've harmed many people. Like I'm not trying to claim like saint status here um, at all. Like, but anything that I've, I, the ways that I've inevitably hurt people has never been intentional. You know, it might've been for my own ignorance or my own selfishness or something, but I've never been like, you know what, we're going to create a really big scheme here to steal people's money and to actively harm people. And like, that is real confusing to me as to how you could be a lifelong meditator, how you could have access to these philosophies and then use them in a way that actively is, is hurting people. Like that is a real mystery to me. And, and one that I'd like to figure out because it, it flies in the face a bit of my work because I'm operating under this premise of like, if I can get to the world's highest performers, you know, the petroleum executives, the big time policymakers, the arms dealers, the energy folks, like I want to be teaching these people, like the hundred dudes that have, you know, 48% of the global wealth. These are the people I want to be teaching because I have this hypothesis that if they can change their state of consciousness from one of greed to abundance, then maybe they would stop hoarding 50% of the planet's wealth. Mm. Um, and so, but, but then you, you, know, you watch things like Wild Wild Country, you listen to things like Guru, this podcast, and you're like, well, maybe my hypothesis is wrong, or maybe those people were just mentally ill and using these tools as a way to advance their mission. So anyway, those are some things I'm pondering on. Well, you've gotten maybe a level or two below that. Like you said, you dealt with stars and, you know, like high-end wealthy people. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I know it's probably a silly question. I would guess they're no different from normal people, but is there anything different about them? And then does that make you suspect, like, you know, if like Warren Buffett said, hey, help me out, you know, or some of the top people in the world like that, said that they'd be any different yet still we're just... Well, I, I think that, I mean, humans are humans are humans. The thing that I noticed between like super high performers is, you know, they're, 
they're draconian about their time. You know, their time management is really extraordinary. And also their prioritization is, is very good. And that's, you know, by necessity. Um, but, you know, I would love to teach Warren Buffett. Um, hey, Warren, call me. Uh, it was my dad's middle name. Um, but I, I think that he's doing a lot of good in the world, at least my perception. Um, but I've seen, I have noticed that even with these like ultra successful folks that once they start meditating, it does start to wake up something more altruistic in them. Like maybe they start like a charity part of their business, or maybe they, you know, become more active with a children's organization. And so I have seen that happen. I actually have a draft of a book. It's not going to be a thing because we pivoted, but it was called Made to Matter. And it was basically me interviewing all of my social entrepreneur friends talking about how meditation had changed their business models, how meditation had changed their mission at their companies. And That's so cool. I've seen it happen on the small scale, but um, not on this like very, very elite scale yet. You know, like it's a hypothesis. Like what would happen if yeah. I was like to teach Trump to meditate, you know, and love him or hate him. It's like, would, do you think that would make him better at his job? Do you think it would help? Or do you think it would be like a tool that he would use to continue on you know, whatever his agenda is. So it's, it's something I think about a lot. Well, I, you know, I was, I was going to ask you this. Have you ever thought about, uh, you know, uh, I got to see if I can put it right, deliberately seeking out someone that maybe has done terrible things and teaching them to meditate, you know, like, I don't know, warranted or not someone on death row or someone that really is like a horrible person. I know mm -hmm. that I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff that would come along with it that, you know, may be a very bad idea, but, I wonder what would happen if you work with someone that, you know, again, was like, you know, had done truly horrible things or was truly a really bad person, what it would be like for them. You know, I know you're helping someone again, that's horrible, but it just would be interesting to see what would happen. Yeah. I mean, I've not, I've not, I've not done that, but it's an interesting experiment. I mean, I like to operate under the premise and this is my Southern pageant girl coming out, but that there's really no such thing as a horrible person. There might be sick people. There might be people that are doing horrible things, but I really like to believe that at, at, that at the end of the day, we're all cut from the same cloth. And that, you know, if you really spent a, not even a day, but a whole lifetime in someone else's shoes, and that includes, you know, what happened to them in utero? What was the state of their mom's mental health? What was their mom eating? What kind of toxicity was in their environment? You know, what things were they exposed to? What traumas did they see? How were they nurtured? You know, you spend a lifetime in someone else's shoes and chances are you're gonna take the exact same or worse actions as them. And so, I mean, I know, it's, I, I know you're, it's a bit of semantics, but I, I think that if you, if you operate on that premise that we're all cut from the same cloth, that it, it helps if you're in the business of healing, right? Because then you believe that anything is possible. You believe that yeah. we can get back to our birthright, which is perfection. Like we're born perfect. You know, it's the stress of the world that tends to make things more challenging. Okay. And then, you know, I know we're getting close to the end. Um, Right now, you know, with all the coronavirus craziness, what do people need that maybe they didn't need before? What do people need now that maybe they didn't need before? Or what do they well, need now more than ever or however you want to put it? But you well, know, what yeah, do you I mean, see the world needs right now? I mean, the obvious answer for me is they need, they need to be managing their stress. Like if you're not managing your stress, your stress is managing you. And that is particular, that's always true, but it is particularly true right now because stress is actually a contagious disease. Like it, well, it's, it's not a disease, but it is contagious. It is, well, you could argue it's a disease because it is responsible for 90% of all doctor's visits. But um, 
I, I just, I've been talking a lot about this idea that stress is contagious, but the good news here is so is bliss. Like, you know, if you're in your house and like your partner walks in and they're just in a terrible mood and like, you can feel that and you're like, oh God, and then you feel terrible. And same is true if they just got like a raise and closed the biggest deal of their whole career, they walk in, they're elated, you're going to be excited too. And so the question really becomes, you know, what do I want to be contributing to the world? Do I want to be toxifying the world and spewing my stress all over my friends and family? Or do I want to be cleaning my own house, flooding my own brain and body with dopamine and serotonin so that I can be lifting up the people in my family, in my company, in my community? And right now there's such a barrage of of fear and negativity because we we are in a pandemic you know this is a life-threatening thing that's going around and then you know people's communities have been demolished people's travel people's vacations people's industries and so there's so many things that we're having to adapt to and when we have to adapt and adapt and adapt and then eventually the straw that will come that breaks the camel's back and then we will have you know that fight or flight stress reaction and so I, I do think that now more than ever, it's imperative that we take extraordinary care of our mental and, and emotional health because it's just, it's, it's too precarious out there. Like you get on social media for 15 minutes, you could roll into a depression really quickly. <laughs> you know, I mean, they call it, you know, the apocalypse means the, the removing of the veil. And that's what's happening right now is there's a veil that's being removed. You know, we're starting to wake up to like, oh, oh, wow, this level of atrocity has been happening to Black people in America for how many hundreds of years? Oh, oh, I was choosing to not see that. Oh, wait, you mean there's like this level of corruption happening in government? Oh, wait, I was choosing to not see that. And so there is a lifting of the veil that happens, which I think is necessary. We have to bring the light in, but at the same time, we're going to need to be very resilient as we deal with the intensity of this darkness that's getting stirred up. Very good. What's the best way for people to, uh, you know, what I can find your course, where do they go? And, yeah. uh, you know, what does it take to start? Yeah. So the easiest place to find us is zivameditation.com. So as you said earlier, it's Z-I-V-A meditation.com. And there you can find the online course, which is called Ziva Online. And it's just 15 minutes a day for 15 days. And you can choose your own start date. So it's, if you enroll, if you go right now to the website, it's not like you have to start today. Like you could start next week or two weeks from now. And, and ideally you do it consecutively. And then I also have a book called Stress Less, Accomplish More. And that's you know so available wherever books are sold. I'd say the difference between the two is that the book is very much the science behind why to meditate versus the course is really the how. It's walking you through step-by-step. Step. And also the there's something called mantras, which are like the keys that operate the car of Ziva. And I'd say they're more powerful in the online course than in the book. Uh, and then we're all over social media, but I'd say the best place is just zivameditation.com. Okay. Well, very good. Emily, thanks for coming on the podcast. And I'm uh, glad to have talked to you. And you know, like I said, for listeners, I, I was under you know, like a five minute meditation session with her. And it was really cool. I felt a lot better just in five minutes. So uh, what you do works. So, th so thanks for coming. And thank you for having me. It was a fun, interesting conversation. Right on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com.
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.